Integrated Informatics with Paragon Consulting Partners. Um, today we have with us Jeff Williams, Managing Partner of Paragon Consulting Partners and my co-host, and Dr. Jeff Sobel. And Dr. Sobel is Associate Professor of Medicine at Rush University Medical Center, as well as the CEO and co-founder of Ascend Healthcare Information Technology, a company that innovates cardiovascular workflows, structured reporting, analytics, and collaboration tools. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Laurie. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's our pleasure for sure. Um, wondering just to kick us off, could you tell us a little bit about your background and experience? And uh, I'm actually really curious how you came about to found Ascend. So my co-founder and I, Jim Roberger, have been working in the cardiology IT space for nearly 30 years. We were kind of on the bleeding edge of structured reporting back in the day for cardiology, which has been somewhat transformational, I would say. We were pioneers back then and ended up working with a number of different companies along the way, including the likes of uh, GE and IBM, Cerner, Sectra, and others. And we have developed multimodality structured reporting for cardiology tests and procedures, which has helped to make cardiology one of the most data-driven specialties in medicine. Um, so being a practicing cardiologist um, and balancing that with being a tech entrepreneur, what's that like? I imagine that there's certainly pros and cons to it. Sure. Well, I think the key to you know, getting it right is having a good team around you. So I'm very fortunate to work with a whole team of people who are great at what they do, including my co-founder, Jim Roberger, who's our CTO. And whole collection of really excellent uh, informaticists and engineers and people in other parts of the business. Uh, and it's really that ability to work as a team and delegate authority that makes it work. And one of the hot topics today, um, for very good reason, is what's going on in terms of, obviously, the pandemic. And I imagine that you have felt those changes very profusely on both sides of the spectrum, both from a clinical perspective as well as um, within your own business and organization. But one of the topics I really wanted to dig in with you um, today specifically was your work around collaboration. Again, you know, looking through a clinical lens and looking through yourself as an IT uh, or tech entrepreneur and just the importance of collaboration, specifically in cardiology, but also how you've really seen that shift in recent times due to um, the impact that the pandemic has had on us. So really, a lot of my interest in collaboration has predated the pandemic uh, and only been accelerated by the pandemic. But in my administrative capacity at Rush, spent a lot of time in quality. So I'm actually the vice chair for cardiovascular quality within our group. And I spent a lot of time doing things like running M&M morbidity and mortality conferences where we do case reviews of uh, Sentinel events and other types of things that happen in the hospital that alert us to the potential to do things maybe a little differently or to look at cases where we might have had different outcomes under different circumstances. And really, my number one takeaway from those activities, uh, which I don't really think I'm alone in, is that many of the cases that you look back on and decide that you may have been able to do something differently revolve around 
communication and collaboration. So you know, often where we find that uh, we could have made a different decision or might have gone in a different direction or a particular case, uh, it comes down to the people with the right knowledge and the right experience talking or communicating or collaborating in person about the decision-making process for particular patients. So that was been the spark for my interest in collaboration, and COVID has only accelerated that, of course, because now we have issues of accessibility, accessibility within the hospital, accessibility to patients, the ability to convene lots of people in one place is obviously very much impaired by the issue of COVID transmissibility. So it's been quite a big challenge, as everybody knows in terms of working with patients on a daily basis and also interacting with families, allowing families to have any interaction with their loved ones who may be sick with COVID. But it's also had an impact on how physicians and other healthcare professionals do their work and are able to come together even on a minute-by-minute basis in terms of the care of patients. So I would say COVID has put a new spin on the communication and collaboration challenges in the hospital environment, added some new constraints, but many of the issues that are in that communication and collaboration domain uh, have really been there for, for a long time. So you're mentioning the issues that, that exist sort of in the collaboration and communication, you know, when whenever there might be a decision one way or the other um, that you might have made differently. What are specifically some of those barriers to really driving that effective communication um, in the, you know, cardiovascular world? Well, so cardiology is a little bit unique. It shares many of the same challenges of the rest of healthcare, but it has some unique aspects to it. I would say the uniqueness of cardiology is that we are very heavily an image-based modality and a procedural modality, and at the same time, we're very hands-on and we roll up our sleeves and are caring for patients minute to minute in the hospital environment or in the outpatient environment. And so our activities run the gamut from critical care medicine to procedural medicine, including very advanced and technically challenging and often high-risk or sometimes high-risk procedures to ambulatory outpatient you know, management and just image review and interpretation like echocardiography or nuclear cardiology. So we have an extremely broad spectrum of activities that we're engaged in, and that means we have to be able to collaborate amongst ourselves between the various cardiology subspecialties and with our colleagues in surgery, for instance, as well as other colleagues throughout the hospital environment. So we have a lot of communication and collaboration challenges. I think they're not completely different than what you might see in in a um, surgical environment or in another intensive care environment or hospitalist environment, but uh, they are somewhat unique because as cardiologists, we're dealing with this full spectrum of patient care activities. Yeah, for sure. And and I know in cardiology, you know, as you've mentioned, there's a lot of different care providers involved. Um, lots and lots of different procedures, and even the imaging modalities and the information points themselves are are so diverse, which really introduces uh, a lot more challenges than you know other traditional specialties might encounter um, in communication and collaboration. 
And I'm just, you know, so I'm wondering, getting all of that information together and being able to communicate with those care providers um, in a way that's going to support sort of that timely uh, coordination of care really is going to require, I'm assuming, a, sort of a comprehensive set of, of tools and, and uh, things to make that possible. If you had a, a perfect blue ocean, what would that look like to you? Um, you know, what, what do you think maybe a, a different way to ask the question would be, what do you think is working today? And, and where do you think there's real opportunity to do something different? So I think a number of things are working today. Uh, healthcare has really taken on to secure texting, uh, unfortunately, sometimes even insecure texting in some care environments, but hopefully HIPAA secure texting is pretty common throughout healthcare these days. But it's a fairly rudimentary communication mechanism, although useful and in, in real time. I would say that the next levels involve modes of communication that are more informative and provide a ability to do more actual collaboration. So people often lump communication and collaboration together. They're very closely aligned with each other, but obviously not quite the same. I can communicate something to you, pass information over to you, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we're collaborating. For us to collaborate effectively, there generally has to be bi-directional flow of information or access to shared information exchange of knowledge and experience, and it has to happen in a timely enough fashion that it's actionable and can have an impact on the outcomes that we care about. And so we're kind of moving towards those additional forms of remote interaction that can facilitate true collaboration. That includes, obviously, real-time voice communication and also things like video. I think video's quite a bit different than what you would uh, really want from a typical kind of um, commercial Zoom system or WebEx. Those, those video sessions tend to be more, I think, social in nature in terms of being able to see people as you're talking to them, which is not without some uh, advantages, but I don't think is necessarily at the heart of what we need for healthcare in particular and cardiology. So in addition to just video, I, I think the next level is going to be telepresence, which in essence allows a provider to be remote from a particular situation, but yet be immersed in that situation as deeply as possible in order to be a productive person who's collaborating in real time. So telepresence is a much bigger challenge. It's less me feeding you, let's say, information uh, in a web conference as it is you having access to my actual environment so you understand the patient's environment in real time, whether they happen to be in a cath lab or surgical procedure ICU environment. Having access to all the data you need remotely to really understand what's going on, understand what's happening in that remote location with the patient and being able to contribute to the patient's care in real time. Some of the systems that have been groundbreaking in this regard are, I think, the EICU systems that have uh, gotten a foothold in a number of places across the country where hospitals have implemented telepresence inside of ICUs for nighttime coverage that can be done remotely from a centralized location. And a critical care physician can be sitting in an office space somewhere or anywhere in the country theoretically and have a level of telepresence into that ICU room and access to 
information about the patient, including things like obviously their medical record, but also real-time monitor, video feed from the room itself, potentially other types of monitoring systems like ventilators uh, and voice interaction with all the people in the room. That's a, a, a whole step up, so to speak, from the generic communication and collaboration platforms that can really change the way we bring people together, people who have maybe common knowledge about a patient or slightly different knowledge about a patient and different levels of expertise and experience in order to make critical decisions and improve uh, patient care in real time. It makes me wonder, you know, whether there's an even larger step beyond that. And let me know if you've seen or heard of anything sort of in this realm. But if I look at some of the work that folks have been doing, combining things like data points and video and stuff like that with artificial intelligence, you can get a a really simple application like uh, something would be able to recognize my facial expressions to be able to make an educated guess about um, my reaction to something or an emotion. I wonder if there's an opportunity there in telepresence and telemedicine in general to integrate artificial intelligence in a way that could really augment, again, the the remote attendance of the physicians with, um, you you mentioned monitoring, I think that's what made me think of it, with some sort of monitoring capabilities that could add an additional layer of attentiveness in in those environments. You know, is that totally off the wall or is is that something that uh, has, has made its way into anybody's thought process so far? I don't think it's off the wall. It may be quite a ways off. I think there's some low-hanging fruit ahead of that. Certainly trying to identify patients who are having clinical deterioration ahead of them being kind of critically ill or really in shock or in some acute uh, condition. That's definitely an area that companies have been working on using artificial intelligence and different types of data points, including things like nursing notes and lab values and vital signs and, and other parameters. So those kind of clinical alerts that um, something is going on, I think that's one axis of the equation. Another axis of the equation is getting people the information they need in the right clinical setting at the right time. So medicine has a big signal-to-noise ratio problem when it comes to data. It's a struggle for physicians all the time to find really the relevant information they need quickly and act on that information without wasting a lot of time. It's one of the drawbacks of the electronic health record in general. It contains a ton of information, but uh, most of the information in any patient's record isn't relevant to what you're trying to do at any particular moment. So uh, getting to the right lab value or getting to the right procedure report or getting to the right uh, medication list or prior medication or a piece of information you may need to deal with a particular issue obviously is an ongoing challenge and another fruitful area for AI to play a role down the road. Uh, They're very challenging problems and how those feed into real-time collaboration systems, including telepresence. I think we still have to work that out. But for the time being, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to be picked to help some very capable computers, which are healthcare providers do a lot of computation on their own to make good decisions, whether they're making those decisions analytically or heuristically, you know, with the right information at the right time. And I think that's probably something that we're going to see happen over a much shorter 
time frame, just getting people together and getting the right experience, the right knowledge into the right place. Interestingly, there's kind of a phenomenon that I've experienced amongst healthcare providers, having been a practicing physician for many years. A lot of what we do is curbside each other. I think that's pretty common knowledge. Doctors may be pondering a decision they have to make or thinking about a case and They'll often pull one of their colleagues aside. A lot of times this happens kind of serendipitously. You're walking down the hallway, you see somebody who you think might help you, or you know, actually know something about a patient and you want to get their opinion. And there's a very strong two heads or three heads are better than one phenomenon in healthcare. It's really always amazed me how when you're struggling with a problem that you have with a patient, Uh, Almost every physician, I think, knows intuitively that one of the best things you can do is just talk for a few minutes to somebody else. And of course, there's a lot of shorthand that goes on here in terms of experienced physicians being able to exchange very, very um, small and targeted amounts of information that still allow their colleagues to provide useful feedback or advice. And if I'm taking care of somebody who has an arrhythmia. There's a lot of arrhythmias I can handle on my own, but there are challenging times when, of course, you need to get a consult, but short of getting a consult in in an acute situation or if you're just kind of um, teetering a little bit between option A and option B, sometimes a very short conversation with one of your colleagues can really make all the difference. So it's that kind of um, bringing together of knowledge and experience that I think will help us take the next step in in patient care. And and it's really not a huge technical problem. It's a matter of getting those systems in place, making them usable and not onerous and efficient and getting wide enough adoption that it becomes more of the standard of care for the right care environments. Yeah, and you hit on something there. You're talking about the right information to the right person at the right time, which is certainly a collection of buzzwords that we hear a lot in our industry. And and definitely um, in the realm of cardiology with all of the different data points that we have, I imagine that becomes all the more important. But that made me think about, again, you know, this pre-exists COVID, but with the COVID pandemic upon us, um, that shift from patient encounters, the traditional encounter in the hospital or in the care environment, more towards home-based care. And I imagine there's going to be a lot more emphasis on things like remote wearables and other types of devices that are going to be able to provide us connected information and the wealth of data that that's going to provide, which exactly to your point is a double-edged sword. Um, It's a ton of great data points, but on the other hand, it's a ton of data points that we have to filter through and and try and make meaningful sense out of. Um, The best example I I have from the recent past was the release of the Apple Watch with the, the ECG feature which was met with some resistance, um, as I saw from the medical community, because it's great that we have this capability, but feeding that type of information directly to a care provider, obviously, is not going to be feasible for them to be able to interpret that. So, you know, what are you seeing um, sort of in, in your areas, either before the pandemic or after the pandemic, in terms of integrating this type of information into the, the health record? And are there ways that we can actually extract meaningful information out of that today? Or is that still sort of a, a forward-looking use case? Yeah, I think we're making progress. Um, To me, the inpatient hospital setting and the outpatient ambulatory environment are just two different beasts. I think they they have 
very different parameters around them in terms of how the healthcare system operates, how patients and providers interact in those two settings, how information is managed. Obviously, the acuity is completely different between the two. So I think the issue of data interchange and communication, collaboration, telepresence in the hospital environment is kind of one problem set. It's a problem set that's of particular interest to me as a cardiologist and actually as a critical care physician, but it's quite distinct from the ambulatory or outpatient problem that you're describing where mHealth and mobile device data comes into play, the wearables. For me, the biggest one is blood pressure. I have a bias in this regard. I think one of the things that we struggle with in cardiology uh, from the ambulatory side and I think across primary care as well is just really optimal blood pressure management. Now that varies from, you know, rural to urban, from different patient populations, provide kind of different challenges in that area, but blood pressure is just such a big actor, as is blood sugar for diabetics. That those two data points, you know, really getting a handle on people's blood pressure in the ambulatory environment and getting a hold of their blood sugar, in my experience, turn out to be some of the biggest variables. The the arrhythmia stuff gets the spotlight. It's kind of the sexy uh, Apple Watch diagnosed grandma with atrial fibrillation and helped us prevent a stroke scenario. And I, I think arrhythmia detection may be a small slice of what we can gain here, but I'm much more interested in having good blood sugar and blood pressure data particularly in the cardiology area, and getting people to be able to use automated blood pressure machines the right way, record their numbers or have them recorded. Um, The big barriers there aren't so much technology anymore. You can go out and buy a very high-quality automated blood pressure cuff for $25, $35, just about anywhere. The problem is, number one, compliance, people actually remembering to do it, and number two, kind of transmitting the data. So if you go ahead and you know uh, get your blood pressure on a regular basis, but you're not sending it to your doctor, it's not doing a lot of good. So I think that's some of the low-hanging fruit in terms of the biometrics that we'd want in the outpatient environment. I'm a little less convinced that the arrhythmia detection or heart rate monitoring is going to have a big impact for many uh, patients, but I do think the activity monitors that kind of uh, encourage people to be more active are useful. The counting your steps, uh, reminding people to get up and be active, I'm all for that. And I think those aspects of the smartwatch uh, technology are going to hopefully have a positive impact over time. So how are you seeing the role of IT um, evolving and um, collaborating more deeply um, with the biomed side of things um, to help make these things possible? So that's a great question. I, I really think it comes down to hospital priorities. And some of this is driven by having specific champions within parts of the hospital environment who want to change their practice. So for instance, in radiology, I I think the more forward-thinking radiology groups are really very concerned about making the radiologist part of the healthcare team, um, interacting with the point-of-care providers over imaging studies in the hospital environment, in particular, teleradiology at night, of course, has been there for reading studies, but now the excitement is more around how do you get the radiologist to be part of the healthcare team. And I've even heard of 
some programs that are either thinking about or maybe have implemented having radiologists or radiology fellows rounding in ICUs and, and such, which I think would be a huge step forward just to bring the radiologist into the healthcare team, even with remote technology. So if there's a radiology group that is invested in and committed to doing that, then they can go to the hospital, get the buy-in from administration, from IT, and from biomed. So in order to get anything done practically on a medium to large scale, you need the clinical buy-in, you need the administrative buy-in, IT, and depending on what you're trying to accomplish, biomed. And, and I think perhaps one of the biggest challenges to making progress is systematically getting those buy-ins because without them, you don't get the financial support you need for the technology, either as a capital investment or ongoing operational costs. You may not find that your IT department is really going to be helpful in terms of the IT infrastructure, network connections, VPN, or ports that you need to make your system work. And if you're working with actual hardware in the system, particularly in an ICU environment or in a procedure room environment, a surgical suite, you need Biomed to help you create that connectivity that will really give you the true telepresence you're interested in. So that formula, that uh, recipe, so to speak, is going to vary depending on the goals of the project and I think would look different for a cardiology project than it would for a radiology project. Again, in cardiology, we have more in common with IR, interventional radiology in a way. Our cath lab, our structural heart disease lab, our EP lab are really running in ways that are pretty similar to interventional radiology. At our hospital, that's all become one platform, one interventional platform, because everyone realized the commonalities are in many ways greater than the differences. Same for the surgical suites and the kind of hybrid labs that really are now bridging the surgical and interventional environments. And so depending on what your goals are from an interventional environment, to operating room, hybrid lab, ICU, um, and other types of diagnostic imaging or patient care, care areas, you're going to have to decide what your goals are for a particular project and then enlist not just the clinical champions, but the administrative IT and biomed support. And you're going to need more from particular areas under particular circumstances. But if you don't think that through ahead of time, you can have extremely lofty and laudable goals for what you're trying to achieve, but in the real world, uh, you, you may just fall short. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I do think it's a collaboration amongst all four of those groups, and it's important to recognize the role of each of those groups and get their buy-in to what you're trying to accomplish early on in the project. That's a really good point. You know, one of the things that we run into a lot with client initiatives is the inherent silos that exist within the healthcare organization. And you know, I think you're speaking a lot about the importance of governance and collaboration and, and having that coordinated effort. Have you seen that work it well? Uh, and, and where do you see that um, it being initiated most successfully within organizations? In other words, is this an IT CIO level? Um, we need to get people in a room or, or is this clinical leadership CMO? Where do you see that born out of best to establish those sorts of working relationships and, and governance and those kinds of initiatives? 
So I have a bias in this regard, and I, I will admit up front that I'm not sure my bias is correct or applicable in every or even, even most environments. Um, my bias being a clinician is that the clinical buy-in is the place to start. Um, I, I think sometimes the clinical buy-in is too far out ahead. You know, you have very enthusiastic physician or provider champions who really want to push ahead with something and they've neglected to take the step of making the case to their hospital administration or uh, getting IT or biomed on board. But I think more often the problem is when things come the other way, uh, that IT and uh, operational decisions are made out of the C-suite or potentially out of uh, administrative areas without enough clinical provider input and buy-in. We've lived through a long era of EHR adoption here, of course, where that was absolutely the role, although there were undoubtedly CMOs and CMIOs involved in those enterprise decisions around EHR adoption and even enterprise risk packs. For many of the clinicians on the ground, those felt like kind of edicts or mandates, right? This is what you're going to use, and this is how you're going to use it. Show up to training and get started. And, uh, you know, you can get that done. It'll work if you have extremely strong top-down management, and then you just have financial control over the physicians. Obviously, that can be made to work. But I think when it comes to the communication collaboration space, the return on investment is a little bit different. It really hails around physician productivity. It hails around managing some of the high-risk patients that tend to become the high-cost outliers for the hospital. And those do exist, particularly south of the border here in the DRG setting, of course, where you know, patients who have bad outcomes can really not just be bad outcomes from a patient and family and personal perspective, which is bad enough, but also can really impair the financial performance of the service line uh, and or the organization. So we're not very good at measuring those ROIs, unfortunately. And so because of that, we, we don't really measure some of those financial impacts very well, period. And so because we don't have that baseline data, most of the time we're not in a very good position to modify those outcomes and measure you know, the improvements that we're trying to make. So it's a challenging area in the communication and collaboration space. And certainly if you're feeling that you will benefit from a telepresence project because it will allow you to promote a certain program you're running or be more efficient, have better outcomes, or make better use of your highly trained but limited clinical resources, people who know how to do a certain procedure. All those things require the clinicians being convinced that the technologies and the systems you're going to implement are going to translate into improvements in their performance. So all, all four of the legs at the table are important here, but my bias is that in this particular IT area, it's very important to make sure that you know that the problems you're setting out to solve are the ones that your clinicians you know, feel are the highest priorities. 
Yeah, for sure. And and that's definitely definitely something we've experienced through a number of our adoption projects as well. Um, but sort of feeding on after that, you know, assuming we get everything, you know, in place, well, you mentioned some of the adverse clinical outcomes that could happen or, or adverse financial outcomes, you know, if these things aren't done correctly. One of the other things that I think um, is becoming an emerging uh, problem is the idea of documentation and, and records retention. So, when I'm thinking of things like telepresence and all of the different types of technologies and information, including you know video feeds and things like that that are feeding into the decision-making process, the question for me then becomes how much of that needs to become part of the permanent record? Are we looking at storing you know videos of those types of things? Is there a medical legal issue attached to that? You know where um, a decision might be made, and if you went back and reviewed the video, was there something in the video that might have given an indication of something that wasn't remarked upon? Or, you know, how how deeply into this cycle could we get when we think about all of these advanced technologies and, and new ways of delivering care and doing things, um, and what that means for data storage, records retention, and, and like I said, medical legal impacts of those types of things. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And what we found is that there is not a one-size-fits-all to this question. The onus ends up being on the organization to really develop its documentation and records retention policies and try and decide how things like secure texting or even video encounters or telepresence would fit into those kinds of those kinds of record retention and documentation policies and, and procedures. So there's a lot of things that don't get recorded, right? If I call one of my colleagues on the phone or if I stop in the hallway and I have a conversation with them about a patient, sometimes under some certain circumstances, there'll be a note written in the chart to memorialize the decision-making process or a conversation. But a lot of times those things happen in the course of daily practice and aren't necessarily committed to the clinical record uh, or certainly courted kind of start to finish. And I, I think these types of communication collaboration platforms and telepresence in particular is probably going to largely stay outside of the realm of standard documentation and records retention with the exception of potentially the secure texting or, or chat room. So different institutions may feel differently about either retaining all secure texts related to a patient, uh, retaining it for different periods of time, or retaining none of it. And some institutions will consider the electronic health record to be the kind of primary uh, locus for patient documentation and would expect that whatever type of communication happened in a in a secure text or in a telepresence session would then be memorialized as a note or some kind of documentation in the electronic health record. That's a pretty long-winded way of saying I don't really have an answer to your question <laughs> and I haven't seen I haven't seen an answer out in the world in terms of everybody converging on a standard approach to this but in my my view of it is the most important thing is that the organization thinks it through, comes up with a rational and defensible policy, makes that known to the people using the system and that people use it that way. And under those circumstances, I think, you know, people will be in pretty good shape. We're coming up on the close of our time. So I just wanted to ask you, you know, for one closing thought, um, we spent a lot of time talking about collaboration and, and telepresence and things like that. And 
I know this has been a topic near and dear to your heart for a while. Or what do you think the future of these technologies and, and these workflows is going to be? Um, and at what rate do you think the adoption of them might accelerate? Again, going back to the situation we find ourselves in and sort of that new new world that we don't even know quite what it looks like, but what we do know is that there's going to have to be a little more technical innovation and a little more um, contactless healthcare provided, at least um, at least in the near term. What do you think you know, the role of telepresence and, and collaboration is going to look like in the future? I think it's going to take off. I think COVID has only accelerated the process. And like most things, you kind of go through a a period of great enthusiasm. You know, everybody wants to jump in and do something new. That's usually followed by a phase of realism where you run up against some of the real world problems of getting from here to there, many of which we've talked about in terms of just IT and biomed and documentation and medical legal. So, you know, the initial pedal to the metal ends up getting pulled back as people start to grapple with real world issues, including the funding side of these implementations. But the genie is kind of out of the bottle. I, I don't think there's any going back. And these uh, telemedicine, telepresence, and secure communication capabilities will only become a bigger part of healthcare going forward. Another major accelerant would be changes to how hospitals and doctors are reimbursed, of course. And some of that already happened with in the COVID era in the U.S., uh, money's been going to telemedicine-type uh, visits and uh, being able to be paid for telephone or video visits at the same rate as in-person visits. I think that's helpful on the ambulatory side, but having similar kinds of financial incentives on the inpatient side would obviously make a big difference. I don't know that we're going to get there because the inpatient side is so heavily DRG-driven that may keep it in the realm of uh, really demonstrating that these investments in these systems will improve performance and both clinical and financial performance under the payment models we have. If those payment models become even more conducive to working this way, then the adoption curve will only accelerate. Yeah, for sure. And, and I can definitely speak up here in Canada as well. We've um, we've definitely been releasing new reimbursement models, reimbursement um, you know, codes and things like that to support exactly these types of care centers that you're talking about. Um, they have been listed as temporary, so it'll be interesting to see whether they persist long term. But I think people are starting to get a sense that um, it is possible and uh, there are some definite benefits to it. So, you know, I'm hopeful with you that this will this will really accelerate adoption. Listen, um, Dr. Sobel, thank you so much for your time today um, and your insights. It was really appreciated. And, you know, we really look forward to seeing what uh, what you and, and actually Ascend are, are working on in the area of collaboration and telepresence. But, you know, in the meantime, um, thanks again for your participation and uh, take care. Yeah, thank you both. It's been a pleasure talking to you.